From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. So glad that you are with us. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. He remains on vacation with his family, but I assure you, he will be better for it, and he will be back soon. But glad that you are with us as we keep up on the events of the unfortunately too eventful August, as uh, in Washington, D.C., we often are hoping that this gets a little quieter, but not so this month. Now, today on the program, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a Texas law banning the most common abortion procedure for second trimester abortions. Some good news out of Texas in the Fifth Circuit. We will discuss that. Also, telemedicine has become more common during the COVID pandemic. But how is the abortion industry trying to leverage this for their benefit? We'll talk to one member of Congress who's trying to do something about it. The end of the program, our American Worldview Inventory for 2021 has listed the top 10 most prevalent, seductive, unbiblical ideas embraced by American adults. What are those 10 ideas? Which of them do you believe or your children? We'll talk about those at the end of the program with David Clausen, who's the director of our Center for Biblical Worldview. want to remind you, you can find the program, TonyPerkins.com. Download the Stand Firm app wherever you get your apps. Type in Stand Firm, and we will connect you via your phone to every Washington Watch program, as well as all the other FRC resources. But first, the headlines for the news today. The fallout from the Biden administration's disastrous withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan has dominated the news this week. President Biden had a press conference today and tried to calm the dissatisfaction with the way things are going in Afghanistan. In his press conference, he was asked, among other things, about the criticism from the international community. What is your message to the America's partners around the world who have criticized not the withdrawal, but the conduct of that withdrawal and made, it, made them question America's credibility on the world stage? I have seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, British members of parliament, as well as former Prime Minister Theresa May, had this critique. What has been most shocking has been the chaos and the speed of the takeover by the Taliban. Yeah. In July of this year, both President Biden and my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, indicated that they did not think that the Taliban was ready or able to take over control of the country. Was our intelligence really so poor? Was our understanding of the Afghan government so weak? Was our knowledge of the position on the ground so inadequate? Or did we really believe this? Or did we just feel that we had to follow the United States and hope that on a wing and a prayer, it would be all right on the night? That sounds like criticism. In addition, the headline of the London-based Telegraph was that Parliament holds Joe Biden in contempt over Afghanistan. This was just one example of what appeared to be a disconnect between the president and what's happening around him, even with members of his own cabinet. During President Biden's press conference this afternoon, he also said that he had seen no indication that the Taliban are impeding access to the airport in Kabul. An hour later, in a conference call with House lawmakers, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that Americans have been beaten by the Taliban in Kabul. Austin called it unacceptable. Other news from today includes the fact that the, uh, the American government has left, it appears, 600,000 weapons, 75,000 vehicles, and 200 aircraft for the Taliban in their departure. The political fallout is beginning to be felt as well. A poll from the Federalist and Susquehanna polling shows the president's approval rating has fallen to 38%, which is about a 15-point drop, but still probably higher than it ought to be. We will continue to track developments on the ground in Afghanistan, but far more important than the political impacts for the president is the way this will affect the lives of real people in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Joining me now to discuss this is the Religious Freedom Institute's Senior Program Officer and Director of the Middle East Action Team, Jeremy Barker. The Institute advances religious liberty as a fundamental human right and the cornerstone of a successful society. 
and a driver of national and international security. Jeremy, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, what, you bring some important insight. First, uh, just what's your reaction to the president's press conference today and, and how this is being handled in Afghanistan? Yeah, well, I think we see in his uh, statements today a recognition that, as you just said, that there's real lives being impacted by this. And so he's reasserted his commitment to, to U.S. citizens, those who worked with the U.S. military. Um, but frankly, that's something, it's a commitment that we made over 20 years ago that we've been slow walking. And so um, we need to maintain that, um, but we've seen tragic outcomes of this already. Um, and so those costs have escalated. So thankful that he's remained committed to that, but this is something that should have happened uh, before this mess unfolded over the last week. How are you seeing this impact the lives of people there in Afghanistan? Yeah, uh, well, we've, we've seen um, a huge amount of fear um, from, uh, from those who've, who've worked with U.S. military, to be sure. Um, but for us, we've been looking in particular at, at women, at, at religious minorities, um, who, as they see the Taliban uh, reasserting control, reestablishing um, their, their security, their intelligence infrastructure across the country, who have um, already faced direct threats, um, saying, we know who you are, we'll be coming after you. And, and right now, uh, there's, while we're, tr we're trying to, um, to make sure that those people who are particularly at risk are, are being prioritized, that paths are being pursued for them to get out of, out of the country. Right now, um, there's a huge amount of fears. It seems there's very few options, and, and that threat is very real and, and already has Afghans across the country um, hugely in fear for their lives. We know about a lot of immediate short-term concerns and people who feel at risk. As somebody who has studied the region closely, what do you think are the long-term impacts for the people who are not going to, who really have no hope of getting out of Afghanistan? Yeah, um, well, this is it, this is a huge fear that um, that does need to be taken into account. Certainly, there's been kind of this scramble um, related to to getting people out of the country, but these long-term implications, even as you mentioned about the Religious Freedom Institute, one of the the things that we prioritize is how um, religious freedom, the equality of of all people, um, no matter their religious beliefs, to be able to to freely exercise, to not face discrimination or persecution on account of their beliefs. That's so directly connected to stability, to security in a country. And frankly, over the last 20 years, that's one of the biggest concerns um, that the U.S. hasn't, and, and others that have invested uh, trillions of dollars, resources into the country, haven't uh, been able to make progress on that. And with the Taliban stepping in, uh, the the escalation of, of targeted religious religiously based persecution is only going to to increase and um, so whether we look at uh, the two to three million uh, Shia Hazara community or uh, um, for Christians in particular eight to, to twelve thousand um, Christians many, almost all of them from a Muslim background uh, we're looking at really a, a time of intense persecution where uh, for communities that were already in the shadows, they, they're being forced um, in many cases back underground. Uh, many of them that we're hearing have already fled in, into the mountains in Afghanistan trying to, to find shelter and, and to be, be able to reestablish um, some modicum of security as they look at um, what will be um, and what is still an opening question of what, what Taliban governance will look like. Yeah, we've talked this week a lot about the impact on the Christian community, which is uh, which is tiny as a comparison to the the overall population of the country. Um, but this is really a tribal country. It's a tribal culture, and so it's not just the Taliban and the Christians or Muslims and the Christians. How many different uh, is it tribes or religious groups or sects uh, are there, and what generally is the relationship with the Taliban? Yeah, and so that that's something we've often kind of talked about the Taliban as a, a monolith, and that just doesn't reflect reality on the ground. There are uh, these various tribal tribal networks, and we saw this play out even um, even over as the the Taliban reasserted control, where they um, in this case went particularly to um, the places where the opposition was most likely to come from in the north, 
and reestablish control over their, those areas, trying to, to break the back of any kind of tribal resistance um, that would come after them before um, reestablishing controls in, in areas that were their heartlands. And, and so this will be an interesting question is, is these uh, fragmented aspects of the, of the community that you have different different tribal tribal groups, um, religious demographics, and and how they'll be able to come, how strongly or cohesive um, the governance structure will be. Um, and I think that is still still an open question that it's it's early days. It seems that there were, um, prior to the Taliban takeover, um, arrangements that were made at, at some level, um, some uh, coalitions that were built, and that's something that, that still I think is, um, is something to watch um, both domestically within the country, but also regionally, and uh, of how uh, we see how we see Pakistan relate to the um, the tribal um, to the Taliban leadership, as well as some of the the other countries across the Middle East as they um, reestablish this. And I think at this point, it is still an open question. Do you think that the situation regionally there is going to be significantly different? Uh, than now than the, than the first time the Taliban was there in control of the country um, it I think we'll I think we'll see um, the potential for a um, a reemergence of of jihadists in some ways with the instability that we've seen in places like like Libya continuing in Syria um, some of the what was offered by the Taliban to Al Qaeda as a staging ground for transnational operations, in some cases, there's uh, those those safe havens already exist in other parts of the country. Um, but this is something that I think um, will be um, very important for the U.S. for other um, actors to pay very close attention to is in, to ensure that there's not intelligence failures that allow for the um, the continued incubation of um, extremist attacks out of out of Afghanistan. Um, that's something um, the Taliban has said that that they're concerned with, um, whether we can can take that um, with any, any amount of credence, I think is an open question. Uh, but given the, the unfolding stability and, and continued uh, uh, uncertainty across the region, this is something that we're watching very closely. And I think um, there's huge risks that there will be a reemergence of um, Afghanistan as a, a safe haven for the launching of extremist attacks um, prior to, prior to uh, as it was prior to September 11th and in the days um, and months following that. Jeremy Barker, really appreciate your time being with us today. Yeah, thank you very, so much. Appreciate it. It is a it is a complex situation that we are dealing with, and and time will tell whether the way that we are entering into this situation is going to simply send us back to where things were 20 years ago as as jeremy barker indicates is uh, it seems like a possibility but we really don't know we've learned um from afghan from the situation in iraq excuse me that uh, in many ways our attempts to intervene and make things better don't necessarily work if the if the ingredients on the ground within the country within the within the culture are not, not there to change we're going to continue to track this of course but don't go away coming up after the break we have some good news and we do want to give you good news as well out of the fifth circuit the court of appeals there uh, upheld a law banning the most common procedure for second trimester abortions in Texas. We're going to talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. For centuries, the Bible has inspired humanity and shaped the very world we live in. But how do we know this book is the Word of God? and not merely the words of men. What we believe about the Bible is based on what we believe about its source. The God Who Speaks explores the evidence of the Bible's inspiration and authority through some of the world's most respected biblical scholars. We have essentially a dual authorship. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. He says, we saw this, and that sets the Bible apart from almost everything else in the ancient world and its religious pantheon of gods and goddesses. The God Who Speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association, available now at thegodwhospeaks.org.
Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. This is too hard for me. You ever had a child say those words? Well, listen to Psalm chapter 21, verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. We all feel weak at times. As parents, never make light when a child feels something is too hard for them. Encourage them to try to do their best, and if they do it, that's all you can expect of them. Also, teach them that God can give them strength when they really do feel weak. Learning to praise God for being stronger than we are is a wonderful way to help your children overcome their weaknesses. He is strong when I am weak. Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. Hi, my name's Eric. And I'm Kendra. And we have been married a little over two years now. Honestly, I think the, the most challenging part of our marriage so far, we're right in the middle of it. We're trying to have kids right now. I have a spinal cord injury, so that makes things a little more difficult. And um, I just am, am dealing with some issues with infertility. The difficulty is on my end. But it's our infertility. But it is our, yeah. Because we're right. one now. <laughs> and I, I think what's really helped us through this is keeping Jesus at the center mm -hmm. of it all and knowing that anything that causes you to lean and depend on Jesus more is actually a blessing. Yes. It's heartening to, to know that I have someone who's, she's on my team. Tune into By Design as we explore God's true purpose and design for marriage. Just visit the podcast page at AFR.net. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Earlier this week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, upheld a Texas law effectively banning dilation and evacuation abortions, most commonly performed on unborn babies in the second trimester. The federal court's decision on Wednesday marked the first time a U.S. federal court upheld a prohibition on the abortion method, sometimes referred to as a D&E abortion. Joining me now to discuss this good news is Louisiana's Solicitor General Elizabeth Merle. Solicitor General Merle, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Well, we're glad to have you, and we're glad to be discussing something positive in light of what's been going on this week. Um, for those of you who don't know, give us a little background. What is the procedure at issue in this legislation and ultimately this lawsuit? This procedure is really, a, it's a really brutal procedure. It's, it's referred to in the law in Texas and in, in a similar law in Louisiana and in some other states as a dismemberment ban. Um, that's that's the law is referred to as a dismemberment ban because it bans a procedure in which the fetus is removed from the womb while it's still it's removed in pieces while the heart is still beating and while it's basically still alive. So it bleeds to death inside the womb while it's removed in pieces. It's really very, very brutal. And what was the ground of the challenge and why ultimately did the court uh, decide to uphold the law? The, the challenge was to the constitutionality of the law, and it was what we commonly see in virtually every abortion law challenge, and it was a claim that it created an undue burden um, that posed a substantial obstacle to women exercising their choice to have an abortion as protected under Casey. Um, there were some issues in the case about what the actual legal standards were that applied. The Fifth Circuit went on banc, which means the, the, the whole sitting court of eligible active judges vote on and hear this case. Um, there were several judges who were recused, but it was still a large um, number of judges who actually established what the legal principles are that should be applied and then applied them to the case and upheld the law. Now, you, are, of course, are the Solicitor General in Louisiana. This is a Texas case. Why is this relevant? Why is this interesting to you in Louisiana? Because we have a law that's very similar, and that law was challenged in 2016. And there are other states who also have 
similar laws. Alabama litigated this issue. Um, their, their, case, their law was enjoined by a federal judge a couple of years ago. Texas tried this case and created a very different record. And that's one of the subjects of the opinion as it points to how different the record was. It was created by Texas and all the mistakes that the district court judge in Texas made when he ruled on this case below. Um, and that's why the court, part of the reason why the court reversed. Now, of course, because of the nature of the issue, abortion is always being litigated in some ways. We know we have the Dobbs case that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear. How do you think, is this case relevant to what else is happening just nationally on this issue in the court system? Well, it really is. I mean, in a couple of ways. I mean, it, I think that that one of the big things about this case, important things about this case, is that the Fifth Circuit aligned itself with the Sixth um, and the Eighth Circuits by adopting um, June, the concurring opinion in June Medical, which was the case that I argued um, last year. And that case was really um, trying to get the court to identify what the rules are that courts should apply when these challenges are brought up and, um, and how whether courts should be superseding the judgment of legislatures about medical facts that may be in dispute, like fetal pain, for example. So this case has some discussion about the state's interests and the state's right to protect fetal life and to 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 protect uh, medical ethics and to have laws that establish those boundaries. Um, and, and this is an important case because this is such a brutal procedure that it really kind of brings home the interests of the state to prohibit an abortion procedure. Um, it doesn't prohibit abortion. It prohibits use of that procedure, which is very similar to the partial birth abortion case that was decided some years ago, the Gonzalez case. Do you see the decision in this case as a change in any way? Is it going to change the direction of future cases uh, around the abortion issue? Well, it's a change for the Fifth Circuit. That means it's definitely a change for Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. When we go to defend our laws, it's going to help us um, have more clarity and give judges more clarity about what the rules are that apply in the Fifth Circuit. I think with regard to the United States Supreme Court, Dobbs is going to be the most important case to watch in the next year. Um, that case actually poses the question of, I mean, I think it, it, it squarely is presenting the question of whether Roe should be overturned, whether Casey should be reversed, and how much authority can be revert, returned to the states to legislate in this, on this, this very important topic. Yeah, and to that point, uh, we've got about a minute left, but uh, look in your crystal ball. You're, you're a lawyer. You know these people. You know these issues. What do you think is going to happen in the Dobbs case? You know, I think that, I think that um, it's hard to say. It's really hard to predict how these cases will turn out, but I think at a minimum, we are going to get a lot more clarity and 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 hopefully i mean what i pray for and hope for and i think having litigated this case like these cases would like to see is more deference um, given to legislatures to make decisions on the basis of what that state our state's interests are we should be able to protect fetal life um, we should be able to set the boundaries um, on on how to do that through our legislatures and not through the federal courts uh, Solicitor General, Louisiana Solicitor General, Elizabeth Merle, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you also for your just your defense of life, your, your committed, principled, vigilant defense of life uh, for all of us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And she is one of the good ones. And we'll probably hear from more from her in the future as well. Uh, we do need people in the court system just like her who are taking their skills, uh, taking their commitment to the courts. And the good news is we are winning on that issue in many cases, as this, this uh, case uh, illustrates in the court system. The trend is in the right direction. Continue to pray for that Dobbs decision, uh, that the, the case that will be argued, and then ultimately the decision at the Supreme Court. Uh, coming up next, we're going to stay on the abortion issue. Is Planned Parenthood and their allies pushing for an abortion telemed future? We're going to talk to one member of Congress who's trying to stop it right after the break.
making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. I think we'd be well served to take a quick look at some of the economic data this week. The NAHB Home Builder Index, this is an August number. If we were looking at this under normal circumstances, you would say, Dan, I think you gave the February number. It went from 80 to 75. They were expecting 80. It was 80 for July. We end up at 75. That is not good news at all. Building permits were up slightly. So one could say that's a little bit of good news. Housing starts were down pretty significantly, hence why builder confidence and sentiment seemed to be down. Philly Fed manufacturing, so you got the New York, a huge, huge miss. Philly Fed, this is pretty much covers the whole Northeast Carter from a manufacturing index perspective. They were expecting 22. We got 19.4. That's down from 21.9. Index of leading indicators was up slightly from what was expected, still not 1%, but it's a July number. So looking backward a little bit too far, I know it's only a month, but in this environment, we need some real-time numbers. So we'll continue to see, and of course, the upcoming week, new home sales. That's going to be interesting number, durable good orders, and we'll watch all of those along with a revised GDP number for the second quarter personal income, personal spending. All those things will be very interesting as we look at next week. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. Back to Washington Watch. That is Joseph Backel sitting in for Tony today. The guest that we just had, Louisiana Solicitor General Elizabeth Murrell, uh, forecasting the Dobbs decision and uh, the prayer. That I want to emphasize that point that we need to be in prayer for the Supreme Court, for everybody working on that case. Because of the significance of that case, it does give the Supreme Court the opportunity to overturn the Roe versus Wade decision, which, of course, is something that uh, Americans have been praying about for 50 years now, nearly, nearly 50 years, that has been a case that's cost more than 60 million lives in America. There is an opportunity to deal with that, to correct that wrong, to begin the process of repentance. You cannot undo the damage that has been done, but it is possible that we could begin the process of repentance, and it is important that we do so, and we all, in our own way, and certainly prayer is what we can all contribute to that we need to do that. So be prayerful, uh, be alert, and uh, continue watching here on Washington Watch because we will uh, continue to update you on the developments of that case. But this is not the only development in the abortion landscape. Uh, COVID, the lockdowns have changed a lot of things about how Americans live their lives, of course. And one change in how things are done is the meteoric rise in the use of telemedicine. Patients fearful of contracting the COVID virus in a doctor's waiting room are now able to visit with their doctors from the comfort and safety of their own homes. While this is certainly an improvement because it gives Americans easier access to medical professionals, Planned Parenthood and their allies are also using it to expand their abortion practices through the use of telemedicine. What is telemedicine? What are telemed abortions? And I think just in a moment, we're about to have Representative Bob Good, Virginia's 5th Congressional District with us. We're getting him on the phone. But telemedicine, still a little bit of his thunder here, is uh, if you have not done this so far, the benefits of telemedicine, it gives people in rural areas the opportunity to access healthcare much more easily than they otherwise might be able to. There are millions of people in America who don't live within two, three, even four or five hours of a hospital or a medical professional. And when they have even emergency care, it's a long ways away, not to mention just regular checkups and connections with their doctors. So they have made, it's been difficult for them to get 
medical care. And the benefit of the internet and the ease of communication, and one way that medicine is adapting to the technological changes that we're experiencing and the technological opportunities is these people in rural areas, as broadband gets expanded to them and internet access uh, reaches their homes, people can have these consultations with their doctors. And of course, there are many things that you don't necessarily need a physical examination from your doctor for. He can ask you about symptoms. He can uh, he, he simply listen to you cough or otherwise examine you, ask you questions about what you're experiencing and prescribe drugs and send a uh, prescription to a pharmacy that might be near you. And then you can go get your medicine and then uh, when you do, uh, you didn't you save the time and, and frankly, the expense in many cases and the, and the travel time involved in getting to your doctor. So all of this is undeniably progress. But the abortion lobby is seizing on this as well, because what their goal is, as they try to move abortions earlier and earlier and earlier into the trimester through the use of chemical abortions, Planned Parenthood and those who profit from such things have trying to are trying to make it easier to give uh, young women and children in many cases access to chemical abortion pills. Now, why is this a problem? Oh, well, there's a number of reasons that this is a problem. And now joining me to discuss this is Representative Bob Good of Virginia's 5th Congressional District. Representative Good, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Sorry for the delay on getting connected there, but thank you for having me. Well, we were just uh, extolling the virtues of technology, but we all need the occasional reminder that it's not always perfect. So no problem at all. Uh, we can all relate. Um, so I gave a, a little preamble on what telemedicine is. Uh, tell us about the telemedicine abortion uh, industry and, and how that's increasing and, and what you're concerned about. If I may preface my remarks to that, that I'm 100% pro-life from conception without exception, as slavery was the sin, the national sin in the 18th, 19th century, abortion is our national sin of the 20th and 21st century, and hopefully it will one day be outlawed just like slavery, thank God, has been outlawed, and I hope that will be the case someday for, for abortion. I am uh, support every piece of uh, abortion legislation that we have, and the, the, the ultimate one being the Life at Conception Act. So I just say all that to say, you know, it's not just trying to attack some abortions or to try to protect life in some instances, but I believe in protecting all innocent, precious life in the womb. But our Teleabortion Prevention Act, uh, to your point, to your question, is to try to address efforts to try to conduct uh, essentially mail-order abortion. Uh, as those in, in states uh, where, there, where there's uh, laws that prevent abortion at certain stages where they would, physicians would try to get around that through mail-order abortion or just to try to take advantage of folks doing a lot of telecommuting right now in general, doing things virtually, our Teleabortion Prevention Act would require that a doctor would have to physically examine the patient. The doctor would have to physically be present during the procedure when the, when the patient was taking that abortion pill, and the doctor would have to have a follow-up visit. So just to try to raise the standard a little bit and make it tougher. Congressman Good, uh, we did get a late start with you. Any chance you could stay over into the next segment for a couple more questions? Be glad to. Okay, and we, then I'm, I'm going to ask you very quickly, how what what is the frequency with which uh, in about 30 seconds uh, what's the amount of increase we're seeing in this telemedicine abortion uh, it's, it's been going up some 34 percent in the last several years 34 percent is the numbers that we have in just the last several years so it is on the rise and we're trying to head it off and discourage it with this bill Okay, and, and Congressman Good, we're going to hold you over. I appreciate you doing that. We do want to let you finish this conversation and hear about what you are trying to do legislatively. So stay with us. Right after the break, we'll come back with Congressman Good, finish our conversation about telemedicine abortion, why it's a problem, and then we'll have a world loop conversation as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. 
We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Hello, I'm Don Hawkins, here to tell you about Encouragement Live. 55 minutes of industrial strength radio encouragement featuring resourceful guests plus practical biblical insights to help you face life's challenges. We'll be taking your phone calls. So plan to join us for Encouragement Live, Saturdays at 7.05 p.m. Central, 8.05 p.m. Eastern, here on American Family Radio. The American Family Association's mission is to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. Our goal is to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training. Here's another of our core values. We believe true morality flows from biblical principles and directs people to the manner in which God intends them to live. Thank you for standing with us as we seek to stop the erosion of godly values. And we thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. The fastest growing crime in America and across the world is sex trafficking. We're talking about millions of lives every day, even children. Do you know the average age of a child who is trafficked is 12 years old? I know it's not a fun subject to talk about, but God has called the church to take its blinders off and help end this human tragedy. 8 Days of Hope has decided to be a part of that solution. God's opened up a door for us to partner with existing ministries, and that's where we bring skilled volunteers to renovate, rebuild, or remodel facility for survivors to receive the emotional, physical, and spiritual healing they need. If you're skilled in any trade and you want to use your gifts for a greater purpose, please contact us at safehouse at 8daysofhope.com. We would love for you to join us on our next project. For more information about the ministry of 8 Days of Hope, please go to 8daysofhope.com. That's 8daysofhope.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home in for Tony. As we uh, take you into the weekend, we're having a conversation with Congressman Bob Good from Virginia about his uh, response to the growing uh, need or uh, the growing use, I should say, of telemedicine by Planned Parenthood. And Congressman Good, thanks for, for uh, joining us and staying a little longer. Appreciate that. Glad to be with you. Thanks again for having me. Now, now tell us, is the, are these chemical abortion pills really as safe as the abortion industry claims they are? Absolutely not. No abortion is safe, first of all, because it's the taking of an innocent life. And obviously the, the womb, as God intended, it should be the safest place. And instead, we've made it the most dangerous place here in our country and in many other parts of the world. And so it's obviously mortally dangerous for the child, but it's also dangerous for the mother. And, you know, we understand that when mothers find themselves these unplanned pregnancies, these difficult situations, we want to come have compassion upon them, help them. And that's why my wife and I support the local crisis pregnancy center in our community. And they will tell you that when the mother comes in there, they know it's wrong. They know it's wrong, but they feel like sometimes they have no alternative. And we don't need doctors to take advantage of that by trying to make it easier for them to have an abortion and less safe by allowing them to get a prescription for it and to have it happen out when they're alone at home by themselves. And so what this would do is make it tougher and put a higher standard that uh, as doctors try to move towards, uh, you know, continuing the business of abortion to, to do it remotely and take advantage of folks you know, who may be less uh, willing to come inside for a visit because of, you know, COVID concerns or whatever else it might be concerns right now. This would require, again, that they would have to come into the office for a pre-examination. The doctor would have to be present and there'd have to be a follow-up to it and to try to, again, protect life, protect life in the womb, and do what's best yeah. for the mother as well. And the reason that's important, you're creating a scenario where a woman, a young woman, even a child, could be hundreds of miles away from the medical professional who prescribed this chemical abortion. And if complications arose, as they do, intestinal bleeding starts, women have died from these chemical abortion pills. The, that's right. The, the, the young woman or the child is hundreds of miles away from medical care when this happens. And though it would certainly create an efficiency for the abortion industry and ability to raise revenue more quickly, there's an inherent risk to, uh, to children that your legislation would address. Uh, tell us how it's being received in Congress and uh, what the progress is. 
Well, we're just introducing our bill, and I, I think we're going to have a number of co-sponsors. I think um, our members in the Freedom Caucus are going to sign on. And what this would do, this bill would make it a federal offense for these health care providers to perform this chemical abortion without meeting these standards. Again, pre-examination, being present while the abortion takes place, as it is what it is, an abortion, and then doing the follow-up visit. And it would put the penalty on the health care provider. It would provide uh, up to two years in prison uh, for conducting an abortion like this without meeting the standards of this new law. And what it would do, it would strengthen those states who are trying to pass uh, these bills themselves, we would have federal protection for it and also stop the attempt by some of these pro-abortion groups who are trying to use teleabortion to work around existing state laws. Congressman Bob Good, really appreciate you uh, you staying with us for a little extra time and mostly for your ad advocacy for life. Thank you so much. Thanks for being in the fight. God, great to be with you. And it is good to be with him always. And we're, and we're thankful for his time and, and his commitment to that. But this is an emerging issue. Just as technology changes, uh, the issues change. And, and so we are going to continue to monitor this. But now we are going to get in to one of my favorite segments of the week. It is our weekly worldview conversation with the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, David Claussen. David, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Joseph. Good to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us and closing down the week again. Um, the topic today that we are going to discuss is a is a good one. We have the 2021 American Worldview Inventory, which has created and published uh, the top 10 most prevalent, seductive, unbiblical ideas embraced by American adults. That's a big title. So we got a top 10 list. I don't think we have top 10 music, but we're going to run down this list. And I think a lot of people are going to resonate with these. And I think it's going to be a good check of, hmm, am I, am I being deceived by this idea? So I want to get into it. I'll give the idea. And then you, you talk to me about why it's a problem and how big of a problem it is. Sure. Okay. So the first, number one, is the spiritually inclusive idea that having faith matters more than what faith you have. Yeah, so this is really interesting, Joseph. Uh, according to the survey, 62% of Americans believe this, uh, that having faith, kind of a spirituality, this generic understanding or appreciation of a religion matters more than the specifics of your actual religion. Uh, and as Christians, this is really, really problematic because we know that the Bible, you know, first of all, Joseph, let's be intellectually honest, the religions say different things about truth. They make different truth claims. And as Christians, we know that uh, the first I thought of was Acts 4.12, which says there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And so the, the, there's not this equality between religions. Um, and so that is just interesting that, you know, two-thirds of Americans think that just having a generic spirituality matters more than the specifics of your faith. Right. And this is a version of all roads lead to God. Yep. And... Uh, that is not what scripture says, but it is a seductive idea, isn't it? Because it seems like it's tolerant. Now, David, the second one is actually related, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it and then we can respond to it and kind of continue this conversation. The second of the top 10 uh, most prevalent seductive unbiblical ideas is the idea that all faiths are of equal value. And again, 62% of Americans believe this. Even 9% of Christians believe this, that kind of all faiths, all roads lead to the same end. And we, again, we know that's not true. Uh, the verse that immediately comes to my mind is uh, Jesus. That was one of the last things that, that he taught his disciples when he was in the upper room. He, what did he say, Joseph? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so let's just be really clear. You know, the, the claim of Christianity is that this is the only way to God, the only way that we're reconciled to a holy God. You, know, you and I are sinners. Uh, all, of, all of us are sinners. The only way we're reconciled to that holy God is through repentance of sin and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so all faiths are simply not of equal value. All, all faiths don't get us to the same place. Right. Christianity, for better or worse, is an exclusive religion. And let's just remember the reason that the first century church got in trouble was not because they worshiped Jesus. It's because they didn't worship Caesar. It right. was the claim in a polytheistic culture that there is no king but 
Jesus. God does make exclusive claims, and he should if he is God, right? If he is actually God, there's not anybody else on his level, and so there are not other people who we he, he's going to share uh, that throne with, and nor should we expect him. Either he is God or he's not God, um, and if we're Christians and we say that he is God, that means everybody else who claims to be God and who claims to be the vinyl authority is not. Uh, David, the third on our top 10 list here, is the belief in the Eastern religious concept of karma. How many people believe that? Yeah, this one is really, I think, maybe the most interesting to me. 57% of Americans believe in karma. And what's so interesting, Joseph, is that only less than 1% of Americans actually have an Eastern uh, mysticism uh, that would be their worldview. And yet, 57% of Americans have latched on to this tenet of Eastern mysticism and claimed it as part of their own religion. This speaks to something you and I have talked about before, that the dominant worldview in America is actually syncretism. 88% of Americans have what you could call a syncretistic religion, meaning they pick and choose which tenets of uh, they want, of all these worldview options, kind of a cafeteria style. And so, yeah, about 57% of Americans believe in this idea that kind of what comes around goes around, and that's kind of what guides their ethics. Well, it does make me think about Galatians 6. Uh, whatever a man sows, that, he w that will he also reap. Sowing and reaping is a biblical concept. Do you think that the um, kind of affection, if that's the right word for karma, like it is, is connected to this idea that we understand um, cause and effect, sowing and reaping principles? Is that necessarily all bad? No, I don't think it's necessarily bad. No, the, the principle of cause and effect is absolutely true. Uh, the, the New Testament, when you're looking at the commands of Jesus, there's explicit commands. If you do this, you know, you will be rewarded. In the Old Testament, if you keep my covenant, here are the blessings that come from that. What's different, though, you know, with this whole idea of karma is that what you do kind of in this world will affect some sort of reincarnated version of yourself in another life. And so, again, as Christians, we believe, you know, works don't get us to heaven. The only thing that gets us to heaven is that relationship with Jesus Christ. So there is a, there is a difference, but it, you do kind of have to parse it out. Yeah. And, and that's a good distinction. It's an important distinction. Um, the, the karma is connected to the whole reincarnation concept. It's not just about sowing and reaping in this life. It's, am I going to come back as, you know, as a king or a raccoon in my next life? Right. David, the next point we're going to get to is... Uh, in our list of most prevalent seductive unbiblical ideas is the dismissal of absolute truth. Do most people believe that there is such thing? No, they don't. Two-thirds of Americans, 67% of Americans, do not believe that absolute truth exists. Now, what does that mean? 67% of Americans say that there's no way to know uh, something that is objectively right or wrong. And this, you know, a, a phrase you and I have used before is postmodernism. What does that mean? Postmodernism, you know, the age of modernism in the 18th century placed a lot of, uh, we, they believed in science and reason and technology to usher in this whole new era of human flourishing postmodernism throws that overboard says well actually there is no truth uh, there is no way to know if your truth's better than my truth kind of anything goes and so that's where this whole idea of there's no absolute truth there's no objective right there's no objective wrong even in the coverage of afghanistan where we're seeing abject absolute evil there's even some people i've seen on tv that kind of struggle to explain what's actually wrong about what they're seeing because we've kind of lost that moral vocabulary and something like this in this poll shows why that's the case when 67 percent of americans don't think that a concept like absolute truth even exists anymore yeah it's comforting when you're trying to be your own authority in your own personal life and make your own decisions but once you see real evil the idea that there are not some things that are absolutely true and some things that are absolutely not true is more difficult to defend. Now, that gets us to our next point, um, is the in our list, again, of most prevalent, seductive, unbiblical ideas, is the idea is a commitment to personal, subjective morality. Yeah, that's right. So 69% of Americans are absolutely committed to their own subjective morality. And so what does that look like practically? It means that uh, wh where do they go to get moral guidance? Well, they'll, they'll, they'll consult their own feelings, their own experiences. Maybe they'll talk to their friends. Maybe they'll talk to their family. 
but it's kind of what I choose is right is right for me. And noticeably absent of that is any sort of outside authority that you submit your life to. It reminds me of Judges 17, 6, the way the book of Judges ended, uh, where it said, you know, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That biblical language is exactly what this uh, commitment to personal subjective morality is getting at, Joseph. Yeah, and, and the contrast, the, the scriptural contrast, of course, is to the idea that God is the is the one who determines what is right and wrong, and we are not the ones who determine right. what is right and wrong. Either he's God or we are God. It cannot be both. We have to choose. And based on that polling information, even many within the church are determining that they get to decide right and wrong for themselves. The next, uh, the next idea that is secular and seductive and prevalent is the idea that people are basically good. How common is that? Uh, it was one of the most common. 69% of Americans think that uh, we are basically good, and actually 52% uh, of Christians I believe this. Is, this was the highest response rate among Christians who, when you ask them, human nature, are we intrinsically good or intrinsically bad? They'll, they said we're intrinsically good. 69% of Americans, 52% of those who are actually Christians. But again, Joseph, this goes against uh, the biblical teaching of the fall in the book of Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, no, there is none righteous. You know, the Christian worldview does say that there is a fall, that we are actually bad, and that's why we need a Savior. If people are basically good, why do we need Jesus, right? Yep. The next, uh, the next idea uh, that is prevalent and seductive and unbiblical, success is determined by happiness, comfort, goodness, or fulfilled potential. Why do people believe that? Yeah, 79%, the second most response rate, just believe that, that w how they, you know, w w thing that all of us want to do is have meaning in our lives. And most Americans, you know, almost 80% believe that their personal happiness, their comfort, their goodness, their sense of fulfillment is really what life's all about. And is, you know, that actually might sound attractive to even some Christians. Um, but what we know as Christians, Joseph, that the purpose of our life is actually obedience to God and his revealed truth in Scripture. And uh, it's not coincidental that the more we obey, the more fulfilled, the more happy we are, the more we seek material satisfaction, the more miserable we are. The next argument, David, sexual relations apart from marriage are morally acceptable. How prevalent is this? Yeah, no surprise here, but 74% of Americans believe that sexual relations apart from marriage are morally acceptable. If, they, if you know this, would feel, this is what feels good, why not? Thankfully, uh, those who were Christians were very low in this poll, but outside the church, this is just the natural morality that you find. Because of the expressive individualism that our culture teaches, do what you want, whatever feels good, this is the most obvious way we do that. The ninth argument, rejection of the notion that people are inherently sinful. Yeah, this goes along with the one we just talked about. 75% of Americans reject that idea, which makes sense. If 69% of Americans think we're basically good, you're, we're going to reject the idea that we're basically sinful, which obviously right. rejects uh, basic Christian doctrine. And which raises another point that we made earlier. How can you look at the Taliban? How can you look at ISIS? How can you look at serial killers and, and say that People aren't inherently sinful. Sin exists in the world. Finally, we've got about 30 seconds. The idea, the purpose of accumulated personal wealth is unrelated to God's purposes. 81% of Americans think that the wealth they have is unrelated to God. And as Christians, we know all things that we get are good gifts that need to be stewarded for God's purposes. That's exactly right. And if you want to take this list to dinner tonight, discuss them with your friends, find out how prevalent they are for you, they're posted at Tony, TonyPerkins.com. You can find this American Worldview Inventory of the top 10 most prevalent, seductive, unbiblical ideas. David Clausen, thanks so much for discussing them with us today. Thanks, Joseph. And that's our show for today. So glad that you have been with us. Hope that it has blessed you. Hope you have a great weekend. Hope you stay in prayer for our friends, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They need it. Remember, God is always on the throne. We can always go to him and we must. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. 
Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.